Okay, Daniel, and we're going to be in, uh, let's see, chapter number seven tonight. And uh, we finished up with Second Timothy last week, and we'd been looking at uh, Timothy giving his, or Timothy, Paul giving Timothy his last uh, commands and advice and encouragement things uh, before he was to be offered up. And he encouraged him to, uh, to keep going and to strive for excellence, not to uh, fall prey to the false teachings and the pressures and fears and different things that could uh, drive him away, not to follow the paths of others who had quit, but to uh, run his race with patience and to finish well. And so uh, I was trying to figure out where to go from there. And we've been in Daniel on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, and uh, we're getting to the end of the kind of the historical section. The first six chapters of Daniel is historical, and the last six chapters of Daniel are uh, prophetic. And so what I've decided to do is uh, do the prophetic section of Daniel on uh, Wednesday night, and then we're going to be moving on to something else in Sunday school. And so that's what the plan is for right now. So if you're confused at why I said Daniel tonight, there's your answer. There's why. And so we're in Daniel chapter number seven, and we're going to start studying the section of prophecy that uh, deals with end times events. And we've already covered Revelation in the past and looked at end times through Revelation and some other sections. But in Daniel, we find uh, some very good passages uh, dealing with prophecy and end times events. And so what are some good reasons or some good benefits for us studying prophecy? Got a small crowd, but I still make you think. A lot of people study it just out of curiosity, right? Okay, to know what's coming up, that's a good thing, right? We like to know the forecast. We like to know what's ahead of us. Some people get up every morning, they check the weather, right? They want to know what to expect for the day ahead. Uh, people try to forecast what's going to happen with uh, stock markets and businesses and uh, different things that go on. We like to know what to expect. We don't like to be caught off guard, right? And so as Christians, we have in God's word a lot that, a lot spelled out for us about what's going to happen. Uh, the old saying is, I've read the back of the book and we win. That's always a good thing, right? We know how it's going to end whenever the world seems to be in chaos, whenever there seems to be turmoil on every side, and people would look at it and say, can any good come of this? Surely God's not in charge. Surely God's not in control. It seems like the wicked are winning. And then we look at the Word of God and we find out that it's all in God's plan. It's all been foretold. It's all been spelled out. And so we can be encouraged by that, right? I mentioned a little while ago people uh, often study it out of curiosity. Uh, it seems like a lot of times people first uh, get interested in the Bible, first get in church, first get saved or something. One of the first things they want to do is to jump into prophecy. And that's not necessarily a a smart thing or a good thing because that's like uh, wanting to learn how to swim and jumping off the deep end, right? And uh, so that can confuse people. So that's not necessarily a good reason, but to know what's ahead is a good reason. I think some of the greatest 
reason, some of the greatest benefits for studying prophecy is that it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our faith in God's word because we start reading through prophecy and much of the things that we are reading have already been fulfilled. They were foretold ahead of time and we can look at it and say, okay, uh, God's prophets predicted these things that would happen and that happened after their lifetimes, after it was recorded and uh, God proved them to be true and he proved to be able to uh, keep his word. And so that strengthens our faith in God's word. As we're studying through Daniel here, something important about it is Daniel is so accurate and so concise in the things that it says that for a long time it was discredited. People looked at Daniel and they said there is no way that it was written when it says it was written because of how accurate and how precise it is. And they said what happened is someone wrote it after the events pretending to have written it before the events. And so that was the claim and they, they tried to discredit Daniel. Some of the early critics of scripture tried to kind of throw it out of the canon of scripture, tried to reject it from the canon of scripture until guess what? Uh, historians and scientists, archaeologists, whatever, whoever goes around digging and finding ancient history, right? Until they found uh, copies of Daniel written before the fulfillment of the prophecies. And so they found copies that predated the fulfillments and that were clearly predating the fulfillments. And not just copies, they found that it was already even translated into other languages before the fulfillments of it. And so then the skeptics had to concede that they were wrong all that time and that Daniel really was that precise and was really that accurate. And so uh, that is something great that we find whenever we're looking at these things, how it spells it out. It spells it out pretty clearly and in ways that now even people who uh, are critical of Christianity can't refute that he got it right, okay? And so that's with Daniel, but several of the other prophets, prophets that we find, many of the other prophecies we find were fulfilled so precisely, just as God said that they would be, just as the prophets had foretold, that we can say, okay, there's still several prophecies that have not been fulfilled, but if the ones that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled at the in the way that they have, we can take heart that the rest of them will be fulfilled just the same, right? Is everybody still following me? So if God has already fulfilled the ones before, he's going to fulfill all the future ones as well. And so we're going to get into both of those tonight, ones that's already been fulfilled and ones that are yet to be fulfilled. And we're going to find that as God has proven that he is able to make things happen, that he's in control of things, that he's able to keep his word and fulfill his prophecies in the past, he will do it again in the future. And so it provides strength in our faith in God's word, in God's power as well, where our faith in his power is strengthened because we see God doing things that seems to be impossible in scripture. We find that he's doing things that are improbable at least and completely contrary to the way that things would be expected to unfold. And we see that ultimately God is in control, that the world is not 
uh, out of control, as some people think, that it's not under Satan's control, as some would think. It's not under the control of men and dictators and uh, governments and things, but God is ultimately in control. So we are uh, strengthened in our faith in his word and in his power and also in his plan. As we see things unfolding, we may not know exactly where we're at on God's roadmap, but we can see where he's already brought us and we can see the destination ahead. And so we keep faith in him through all the stops between here and there. Okay. Another benefit of studying prophecy is that it motivates us to faithfulness and to service. Because as we're looking at God's plan for the future, at the things that he says are yet to unfold, whenever we look at end times events and such, we see that God's, God's going to bring about his plan. He's going to win. So we're going to, that, that's what motivates us to faithfulness. But then where I said that it motivates us to service, if he's going to return and set up his kingdom and that he's going to judge righteously and finally, and that people who have rejected him are going to go to hell and those who have accepted him are going to go to heaven, that should motivate us to be diligent about the work of being a witness, right? So it motivates us to service with knowing what's going to uh, happen and then the last thing that I have written down here is that studying prophecy uh, reassures us that God is in control. And I've kind of already touched on that. Whenever we think of prophecy, what does prophecy usually consist of? What is the subject matter? What does it usually tell about? Okay, it's going to tell about the future just by definition of prophecy. But what future events, who's going to win the lottery, what color your house is going to be, I mean. Okay. So downfalls and uprising, Sarah says. So we could uh, say it a different way and say judgments, right, and deliverance. And so whenever you look at Scripture, whenever you look at prophecy in Scripture, the main uh, content of prophecy is going to be judgment and deliverance. And so God is warning of the judgment that's to come, but he's also making promises of deliverance for his people. And so you can kind of fit almost all prophecy in scripture into one or both of those two categories. It's either uh, judgment or deliverance. So he tells the people of Israel if you continue on the course you're going, then I'm going to bring your enemies against you and they are going to run you out of your land and they are going to take you captive, right? Judgment. But I will remember you in your captivity and after 70 years, I will bring you forth out of Babylon and you will return into the land that you've been driven from. Deliverance, right? And so you see both of those. Even the... the um, prophecies of Jesus and of the, him being the Messiah, him coming to the earth, he took uh, our judgment upon himself to provide deliverance from our sins, right? Both of those are there. Uh, whenever we look at end times prophecies, the world will be judged and God's people will be delivered out of the judgment, out of the wickedness, right? And so you see both those things fitting into this. 
So let's go ahead and look in Daniel. I just want to give a little bit of a, a background there of uh, benefits to studying prophecy and what prophecy uh, contains. And so hopefully that was helpful, but let's look at Daniel chapter number 7. And I'll go ahead and read uh, first portion here, uh, down to verse number 14. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And the first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand upon the feet uh, as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, uh, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceeding, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them <clears throat> excuse me, another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool, and his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Uh, the judgment was set, and the books were open. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. And as concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man uh, came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Okay, so as we look at this, we find that Daniel was having visions, and his divisions were pretty wild, right? As we look at those visions, what did he dream about? What did he see in his vision? Well, we saw four different beasts, right? What was his descriptions of the beasts? Okay. 
a lion, a leopard, and a bear. The lion and the leopard both had wings, right? The bear had ribs in his mouth, right? So you got some weird stuff going on here. And then the fourth beast, it doesn't give any kind of a description of it as being like any other kind of animal. It talks about its claws and about its teeth, but it doesn't tell like it's a bear or if it has wings or if it's like some sort of a, a cat-like creature, a lion or a leper or a tiger or a porcupine. We don't know what he is, right? Okay, so he's some sort of a, a crazy-looking beast, and it seems like the fourth one is the one that gives uh, Daniel the most trouble. And so as we're going through Scripture, uh, we have to interpret Scripture correctly. We've mostly been looking at historical things so far, and as we're looking at historical things, uh, these are uh, things that are to be literally interpreted, right? Whenever Daniel says that uh, early on that the... Uh, Three Hebrews were cast in the fiery furnace, and they had no hurt, and they came out, and they didn't even smell like uh, smoke or anything. Is that symbolic language? No, that's literal language. There was literally three men. They literally took a stand. They literally got cast into the fire, and they were literally not harmed, right? And then we come into uh, prophetic scriptures like we have before us today, and is... Daniel talking about a literal lion with wings or a literal bear or these other beasts that we see, is that to be taken literally? No. And so whenever we get into prophecy like this, we use the Bible to define the Bible and we find different things that are going to help us understand what he's actually talking about. Not only that, but if I would have continued reading uh, the rest of chapter 7, it gives us an interpretation. And that's a, that's a great help, isn't it? Whenever the Bible tells us what it's saying, whenever the, or whenever the figurative things, the metaphors are interpreted in Scripture, that makes it easier, doesn't it? But we can also compare Scripture with Scripture, and we find uh, some extra help in uh, Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and in Revelation uh, relating to these things, Okay. And so what we're going to find with these four different animals uh, that are in this passage, they are four different uh, empires, four different kingdoms uh, amongst the Gentiles that would reign. And they are the same four kingdoms, same four empires that were represented by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the golden or of the metal man. You remember the metal man in chapter number two had the head of gold and the uh, arms of silver and the loins of brass and the thighs and the legs of uh, iron and then the the feet and the toes were part iron and part clay you remember all that and so this is going to uh, kind of layer on top of what nebuchadnezzar has dreamed and the interpretation from back then but if you remember how old would daniel have been whenever he interpreted the dream for nebuchadnezzar any ideas Okay, maybe in his 40s? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the first one whenever he took him into captivity, right? And whenever he went into captivity, he was probably late teens, and he took his stand, and he didn't, uh, didn't eat the wine and the meats that the king offered him. And then sometime after that, 
he was brought in to interpret this dream. And so we don't know exactly how old, but that would have been early in his career, right? And so now we are all the way up. Nebuchadnezzar has came and left. And then uh, the one that came after Nebuchadnezzar uh, was murdered and a couple other of them. And now uh, Nabonidus and Belshazzar are ruling, right? We talked about that on Sunday. And so they are ruling. And so Daniel is a decent amount older now. And so he's getting up closer to the end of his life. We find that whenever the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon, that is close to the end of the captivity, which the captivity was about 70 years. So you figure if Daniel was a, a teenager whenever he went into captivity, captivity lasted some 70 years, then Daniel is going to be up in his 80s probably, right? So he's going to be an older man whenever we come to this passage. And so the metal man was early in his life. This is late in his life. Uh, the metal man was uh, kind of a brief overview. This goes a little bit more in depth in the prophecy, okay? So is everybody following me so far? I haven't lost anyone yet. Nobody fell asleep. Okay, anyway, so I want to bring out just from the first verses here that we see in chapter number seven. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar. Now, this is going back before the passage that we looked at Sunday in Sunday school. Remember, Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall, and he died that night, right? So this was in the first year that Belshazzar was ruling. This would have been, uh, depending on who you ask, uh, maybe seven years before the events that we talked about on Sunday. Okay? And so with that, who was in charge during that time, other than Belshazzar? What empire are we talking about? Babylon, right? And Babylon was the head of gold. It was the first empire on God's timeline, right? And we said we're talking about four different empires as we're studying this out. So we're still in the first one. And so as he's getting ready to tell us about these four consecutive empires, he's telling us about all four of them while he's still in the first one. The reason I'm emphasizing this, three of them hasn't yet happened whenever Daniel is writing this and whenever he's telling us about it. But he's going to tell us a lot about those empires before they ever happen. Does that make sense to everybody? This is why people said that Daniel was written after these things came to pass because of how this lays it out and what it tells about these empires. Okay? So God kind of lays out human history to Daniel before it happens. And so anyway, first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had dreams and visions of his head upon his bed. He wrote them down. And it says in verse number two, uh, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And so we're already getting into the prophetic imagery, the four winds striving upon the great sea. And in prophecy, the great sea is a symbol of the Gentile nations. Okay, And we even come in specifically to the Mediterranean because all four of these empires are going to surround the Mediterranean. Because as you remember, the empires would have been the Persians, 
the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And so you look at a map, definitely Greece and Rome is on the Mediterranean, but these empires of Babylon and of Persia also took in all that land surrounding the Mediterranean. Okay, is everybody still with me? And so he says, I'm going to reveal to you, Daniel, what's going to happen amongst the Gentile nations centered around this region of the Mediterranean Sea over the coming centuries, basically. Okay? Anytime that we're looking at prophecy or at things in Scripture, where is the central focus of Scripture? What is our place of orientation whenever we're trying to figure out directions or focus within Scripture? Israel. Okay, that's God's people, right? So whenever you start finding directions east and west and north and south, it is from the point of Israel, okay? By the way, Israel is on the Mediterranean. And so all of these things are going to have to do with Israel because Israel is going to be roped into their empires. And so Babylon is the one that conquers them. And then they are going to be under the Medes and the Persians. And then after the Medes and Persians, the Greeks are going to come in and they're still going to cause plenty of problems for uh, Israel and rule over them. And then ultimately we're going to find that Rome is the last one that conquers them and rules over them. And they're going to be the ones that are in charge whenever Christ comes, right? So those are the things that we've got going on. Whenever it talks about the four winds, we can see something similar to this in Revelation chapter number 7. And I found this was kind of interesting. Revelation chapter 7, the first three verses, it says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, uh, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have healed or excuse me till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so we see between these two passages this idea of the winds that were to be stirring in the affairs of the men on the earth. We're seeing that this is picturing a spiritual battle that's going on and we find that in Ephesians chapter number 6 the Bible tells us that we war not against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, right? So it says that we're not fighting against men, but there is a spiritual force that's going on. And so we see that there is uh, this angelic spiritual... By the way, not all angels are of God, right? Satan, whenever he fell, took a third of the angels of heaven with him, and so they are now serving him, right? And so as we look at this, we find that uh, these, I believe these four winds and these four angels that are stirring in this great sea are the forces that are at work, uh, the spiritual forces that are at work 
behind these empires of the earth. And so whenever you say, well, these guys, these rulers seem to be demonic, well, in a way they were. They were led, they were guided by these uh, spiritual rulers, these principalities and powers that was behind them. And so that's what we see going on in verse number two, the four winds of heaven striving upon the great sea. And what do they produce as these spiritual entities have an effect in the moving of the Gentile nations? They bring about four great beasts out of the sea. Something really interesting in this, whenever Nebuchadnezzar looked and he saw in his vision these four different empires, what did they look like to him? Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what did they look like? Okay, shape of a man, a statue, something put on display, something to be admired, right? Something that was formed and made out of precious metals, gold and silver and bronze and iron, right? And this is from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, from a man's perspective, from a Gentile's perspective. He saw the empires of the world as being beautiful, as being prominent, as being something to be admired, as being something of value. But whenever God reveals to Daniel about these four empires, what do they look like to Daniel? They look like beasts. And so the Bible tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, but that God looks on the heart, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar was looking on the outward appearance as a man and on the things that men admire, and he was looking at these empires and seeing their strengths and seeing their beauty, seeing things that he admired. He even went so far as to make a, uh, a golden pillar or golden statue or whatever after he had this dream, kind of, I believe, as a result of this dream because it was something that he saw as being great. But whenever Daniel had this vision, he saw beasts and he was terrified by them. And I think if we look at the empires of the world, if we look at politics and we look at all of the wars and the, the battles and things that's went on, we can really see where uh, Daniel was seeing these empires as being beasts, right? And so their true form was coming out. It wasn't that they were a literal beast, but this was their behavior. This was their manner how they actually were. They weren't beautiful. They weren't something to be admired. They were something that was ferocious and something to be feared. Okay? And so he says, four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So they weren't the same. They were going to have differences. They are going to have strengths and weaknesses, different methods and modes. And so he goes through and he doesn't tell us here later on, Excuse me about these first three so much he tells us about the fourth one and so as we go through i want to go ahead and and talk just a little bit about these first three and then we'll look and see what he says about the fourth one the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings and so a lion is known for being fierce it is fast and then the idea of having eagle's wings also uh, stresses this idea of speed okay something being quick. And we find that Nebuchadnezzar, whenever he set up Babylon, he had inherited the city of Babel, or Babylon from 
the beginnings of Babel all the way back at Nimrod in the Old Testament. And we find that uh, that city continued to exist, but Nebuchadnezzar, whenever he got it, he expanded that city and made an empire out of it by conquering the land surrounding him. And his initial victory was an extremely swift one. And so he conquered all of those lands. He set up an empire, and it's the empire that ended up uh, overtaking uh, Judah and conquering them. If you think about it just for a minute, our Old Testament, um, Old Testament narrative here, do you remember the one king, uh, I believe it was Hezekiah, who got a visit from people from Babylon, right? You all remember that? People from Babylon came, heard that he had been sick, wanted to congratulate him on his recovery, and Hezekiah foolishly went and showed all of the riches of Jerusalem and of Judea, right? And then the prophet came to him and told him that he was foolish, that this very same Babylon was going to be the ones that came and conquered them in the future, right? The reason I bring this out is that at that time, Babylon wasn't a force to be reckoned with. It was still small. It was a small country. It was something that maybe Nebuchadnezzar, had, or excuse me, not Nebuchadnezzar, Hezekiah had never even heard of yet. But within just a few successive kings after Hezekiah, Babylon has become such a great empire that it's going and it's conquering all around the Mediterranean and it's amassing a great land, right? And so we see the swiftness of this creature that came in, and it says that it was like a lion, had eagle's wings, and it says, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand up one feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And so this is the one part that was already fulfilled at this time, was that with Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was the driving force. He was the lion with the great wings, but it says here that the eagle's wings were plucked. He got his wings clipped, right? What happens to a bird when you clip their wings? They can't fly, right? Takes away their speed, it takes away their ability. And so it makes them a pet, really. If you have a pet bird, you clip their wings, and they can't get away, right? And so what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, God clipped his wings, didn't he? Whenever he sent him out as, a, as an animal, whenever he humbled him, he clipped his wings, and it says that rather than having the heart of a beast, that he was made to stand up, and he was given a heart as a man. And so whenever Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, was humbled, and whenever he was converted, he had a change of heart, and then even his successors after him in Babylon had more of a heart of a man. They weren't still seeking to go out and ravage and uh, conquer and everything, but they were more content to continue ruling where they were at, and much less powerful, uh, a lot less, um, a lot less zeal in their uh, military pursuits and things, they were just kind of content to enjoy the high life of being at the top of the empire, right? And we talked about on Sunday how uh, Belshazzar was in the palace throwing a huge feast and getting drunk whenever he was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, right? And so not only did he have a heart of a, of a man, he had the desires of the flesh, really. He was just going about fleshly pursuits from that time. And so we see here that this is the lion that we're talking about. Uh, his wings were plucked. 
stood upon his feet as a man, was given a man's heart. And then we have in verse 5, Behold, another beast, a second. Now this is the one that hadn't happened yet whenever Daniel is telling us this. This is one that's still to the future. We can look back to prophecies, I believe it's in Ezekiel, where it actually names the guy by name, I think it's Ezekiel 44, where it says that Cyrus is going to come and going to defeat Babylon. Calls him out by name some 120 to 150 years before it ever happens. This guy hasn't even been born yet, and God has revealed his name. And so you can imagine that Daniel is writing this at the end of his, almost to the end of his life, toward the end of the captivity, and the Medes and the Persians are already coming up on the, uh, up on the radar, if you will. They're already making headlines if they had headlines back then. And whenever they start, uh, Daniel is still in a position of power and of influence. He still knows what's going on around. And whenever he starts hearing about the Medes and the Persians, and he hears that they have a leader by the name of Cyrus, I figure his ears perked up a little bit. And he says, hey, I read about this guy in the prophecies that there's going to be a Cyrus that comes in and takes out the Babylonians. And so with that understanding, Daniel already knows these things. Whenever he reads the handwriting on the wall that's been given to Belshazzar, he knows that Cyrus is just on his way there to depose Belshazzar, to get rid of him, to conquer him, and set up a new kingdom. So Daniel is just basically waiting for, uh, for the change in leadership to take place. He's seeing it all happen because God's already spelled it out, okay? And so just kind of as a little bit of a side note here, how do you get to that place where you can just kind of stand back and watch God working, where you can kind of understand and start seeing pieces fall together? Well, that comes from a lifetime of walking with God and of being familiar with his word. And so in the day that we live in today, we can see prophecies coming together. We can see the stage being set for the Lord's return, for the things that we read about in later on in Daniel and later on in uh, Revelation. We can see those things already starting to come to pass today if we will get in God's word and study and be familiar with it and be walking with him. We can find that just like Daniel sitting back and saying, hey, I'm starting to see things that I've read in scripture, things that I've heard about all my life, I'm starting to see them come to pass. It's what Daniel was doing back then, but it's something that we're starting to see in our day to day. And so just like Daniel got to experience it back then, we're on the cusp of being able to experience that today. That's kind of cool, isn't it? You think about Daniel just waiting for Cyrus the Persian to come in and defeat the Babylonians, and Daniel sitting in Babylon, he hears that the Persians are on the move, and he says, I've read about this already. I know what's going to happen. We're at that place now in end times prophecies. And so anyway, coming to verse number five, the beast, it says a second one like a bear, and it raised itself up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth and uh, three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, 
And they said thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. Is a bear known for its speed? No. Now it's faster than you or me. If you try to outrun a bear, you're probably in trouble. But they're not near as fast as what a lion or a leopard is. We don't see that the bear has wings like the lion or the leopard did. But instead, what a bear is known for is its strength, right? And so the bear is the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Medo-Persian Empire's uh, method of fighting, method of battle, was brute force. Anytime that they were on the move, anytime that they were engaging in battle, they knew that they had not just a superior number, but they had a number far and above what was necessary. Okay, They believed in the spirit of overkill. And so if it could be one with 100 men, they would bring 100,000. That was the way they fought. They would regularly have armies up in the millions going and marching off into these wars and these battles and conquering. Uh, one place that I read, there was 50-some different nationalities that were represented in the ranks of the army during one of their battles. Over a million people who were marching because everyone who was conquered became inscripted in their armies to continue beating the future enemies. Okay, So if they came through and conquered Ireland, they would just pick up the young men from Ireland and say, okay, now you're in the army and you would be conquering and killing or being killed. So they, they exercised brute force and that caused a huge number of fatalities. Okay? You think about modern warfare, they don't excel in brute force, they don't excel in great numbers of casualties. They fight in strategic ways to minimize casualties for the most part. You look at some of the earlier warfares uh, of the current era, before they had some of these modern technologies and things, you would have high numbers of casualties. Back whenever they fought with swords or with muskets, fought on horseback, and they, you'd have a lot of people killed, right? But today, they can set out in the uh, on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean, send a cruise missile, and put it down somebody's chimney over 500 kilometers away, right? And they can be extremely strategic in the way they do that. And the reason I say all of this is that wasn't any of the way that the Medes and Persians did. They came in with a huge number and killed everything in their path. And with that, they would lose numbers, but not near as many as the ones they were conquering. So they come into battle and they have a million men and they kill 500,000, they lose a couple hundred thousand of their own. There's 700,000 people that have died, but they won. You see how this goes? And so what does it say about them in verse 5? It says, And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And so that's what happened. There was lots of bloodshed under the Medes and the Persian. It says that it raised itself up on one side. I keep talking about the Medes and the Persians. If you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that was the upper body part that was made out of silver with the two arms. And I said it was two arms because it was made out of two parts, the Medes and the Persians. But one part became stronger than the other. The Medes succumbed to the Persians, right? And so where the bear lifted itself up to one side, that is where it favored one half of the empire. And whenever it says that it had 
these three ribs in its mouth, these are the three nations that they had conquered to begin their empire. Okay, that would have been Lydia, Babylonia, and Egypt is the ones that Medo-Persia conquered to build their empire. Okay, and that was the three ribs. It's showing that's the meat that's still between their teeth. That's the one that it has just destroyed whenever it sets its uh, sets its uh, eyes upon future conquests here. And so all of this is historical facts about the Medo-Persian Empire, but all of this was still future whenever Daniel penned this. So you see how the details are all in there? How much information it reveals before it ever happened? We come down to verse number six. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. And so, of course, a leper, or leopard, not leopard, a leopard is one of the fastest of the animals. It can run extremely fast. And then it had four wings on it as well. So that was emphasizing the speed of it. And this was the Greek Empire. And so the Greek Empire was formed under Alexander the Great. We've all heard of him, right? Anyone know how old he was when he died? Close. He was 32 when he died. And so at 32 years of age, he had already conquered the then known world. He had conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and what had uh, been once the Babylonian Empire. He had conquered all of that by the time he was 32. And so you think about this, it's talking about great speed by which he conquered. And so he had one of the fastest, one of the quickest uh, rises to power ever recorded. One of the quickest, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Conquests, I should say. Yeah, one of the fastest conquests that we can find recorded anywhere in human history was Alexander the Great. It's said that whenever he uh, had conquered all of that, that he actually, uh, he got to one of the rivers or the, somewhere and he actually wept because he'd run out of places to conquer and died at 32 years of age. That's pretty insane, isn't it? And so that's why we see the leopard has the wings, but it says that he also had, the leopard had four heads. What happened whenever Alexander the Great died? His kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. And so that's the four heads that we find here. And so that was a kingdom, it was an empire that wouldn't exist until more than 200 years after Daniel was writing this. At this time, Alexander wasn't even thought of. The Greek empire was not even thought of. It wasn't anywhere even on the radar, and he's already said that it's going to be formed fast and that it's going to be divided four ways. So that's pretty good, isn't it? All these things told ahead of time. Then we come down to verse number seven. We're not going to get into the fourth beast tonight. We'll look at it next week, Lord willing. But I'll go ahead and read here and give just a couple little thoughts on it. 
says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So iron teeth and ten horns, and it was dreadful, and it was fierce, it was a beast. That's about all the descriptive we have. But if you turn over to Revelation, you don't have to right now, I'm just going to put this here. Turn over to Revelation chapter 13, it gives us a greater description of this, and it starts having the some of the strengths of the previous three empires grafted into it. That it's got the paws of the bear, and it's got the head of the lion, and a couple of things like that. I can't remember exactly all of them there, but that's in Revelation chapter 13. Describes this beast in further detail. But anyway, it is this fourth beast that catches Daniel, gets him the most interested, the most curious out of these four. And it's the one that he spends the most time on in this chapter. It says in verse 8, he considered the horns, and there came up another little horn amongst the ten horns, and that it plucked up three of those ten horns by the roots. And then it had eyes and a mouth, a horn with eyes and a mouth. And it was speaking great things. Now you look at Daniel and you say, uh, yeah, you might want to change your diet a little bit. Don't be eating, you know, pizza before you go to bed, something like that. Because he's dreaming some pretty weird stuff, isn't he? But we're going to find that it's all going to be uh, spelled out in the rest of this chapter. We find that, uh, like I said, I'm just going to do a couple thoughts here. Uh, the rest of the passage that I read uh, concerning verses 9 and following, it's talking about the final kingdom. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that there was a mountain and a stone cut without hands, that came down and bashed the feet of his statue, and the whole thing crumbled and fell. We find the same thing going on in verses 9 through 12 here. And this is the final kingdom where Jesus Christ comes down to this earth. We find that it talks about the Ancient of Days, that's God. But it also talks about another one coming before the Ancient of Days. And here we find Jesus Christ mentioned, the Son of God mentioned, in the Old Testament in Daniel. We see God the Father and God the Son both in Daniel chapter number 7. And so if you say that Jesus didn't come along until the manger in Bethlehem, you need to do some more reading because he's all the way back here. We find that in verse number 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of a man came with the clouds of heaven. That's familiar imagery, isn't it? Jesus coming in the clouds. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. My final thought on this, uh, verse 15, Daniel was grieved uh, in his spirit in the midst of his body, and the visions of his head troubled him. Now, if you saw all these wild, crazy-looking creatures, you'd probably be a little troubled too. 
you may be evaluating your diet, trying to figure out if there's something wrong with you, maybe go and see your doctor, check if you got a temperature moving. But anyway, it troubled him, and he came near to one that stood by. There was someone near him that he could come to. God had provided him someone who was able to answer his questions and to, to calm his fears and his troubles here. And God can make possible for us to get the information we need when we need it. And this is what happens here. And so he asked him about it. And it said, so he told me and made me to know the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Okay, we've already kind of covered that, right? And so whenever Daniel says, what does this mean? He says, all these four beasts are four kings that shall arise. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever, verse number 18. So this is where I was going with all of this. Daniel has just saw all the dreadful kingdoms down throughout time. He has seen the way that man was going to corrupt and devour one another and conquer and rule and bloodshed and fierceness and wrath and all of these different things going on. And he asks this heavenly messenger here, what does this mean? And he says, he doesn't go into detail in all of it at first. He says, these are kingdoms that's going to happen, but the Lord's going to come and destroy them all, conquer them all, and he's going to rule and reign forever and ever. And so the point to all of this and the point that this heavenly messenger brings to Daniel is it doesn't matter what the kings of this earth do. It doesn't matter about what these empires come and they go, about the wickedness that they have, that ultimately God has a plan. He has a way. He's going to wrap it up. He's going to finish it up. And the Lord is going to rule and to reign forever and ever. And his kingdom will be a just kingdom. He will be a gracious and a good ruler. The corruption will cease. The wickedness will be gone. And so whenever Daniel's heart is troubled, whenever his mind is worried, he's got all these anxieties and fears, this is how this heavenly messenger reassures him. God's got it in control, and he's going to fix it. He's going to win in the end. He's going to take care of all of it. Yes, men will be wicked. They will reign for a time, but their season will be over, and God will reign. So with that, I better wrap it up for tonight. Lord willing, next week we're going to look into this fourth empire, which is the Roman Empire, and then the fifth one, which is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ himself. Okay. So any questions or comments on what we've looked at tonight? Nope, nothing. Okay, well, if we've got nothing, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll call it an evening. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we do thank you for the time that we have in your word. We thank you for the way that you lay this out so that we can see it, so that it makes sense, Lord, that we can be uh, assured, Lord, that uh, you know the end from the beginning, that you've got a plan, and that things are going right according to schedule. And, Lord, that uh, just around the corner you're going to bring these things to pass. And, Lord, that uh, the, the kingdom, uh, kingdoms of men will 
be wrapped up, Lord, and that you will rule and reign. And Lord, we just we're so thankful that we can be you on the on the winning side, Lord. And Lord, just ask you help us, Lord, to keep these things in mind. Help us, Lord, to be reassured by them. Help us, Lord, to be excited by it, Lord. Not excited that uh, there's going to be destruction or judgment, Lord, but excited by the fact, Lord, that you're going to you're going to wrap all of it up. That you're going to take care of it, Lord. You're going to make things right. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.